Hi, welcome to the Bioinformatics chat. This is the second part of a two-part conversation with Sergei Nurk and Sergei Korin about genome assembly. In the first part, which was in the previous episode, we talked a lot about genome assembly in general and about CNU. So if you haven't heard that one, that may be a good place to start. And in this episode, we'll dive deep into the world of hi-fi sequencing and hi-GNU. So now let's talk about hi-GNU. And hi-GNU is a version, a modification of CNU that is specifically tailored for hi-fi uh, reads. And so I think a good place to start is... Uh, if one of you could give an introduction, what hi-fi uh, reads are and, and how do they work? Uh, sure, I can start. And Sergey, you can fill in anything I miss. Um, so I'm not sure how familiar listeners are with back biosequencing, but for any of their sequencing, you ligate these smart bell adapters um, to your molecule. You have your DNA that's double-stranded. Um, and it has the ends, and you attach this little loop on both ends uh, so that when you put it into the well, the ZMW that PacBio is actually using to observe um, the polymerase, uh, as the polymerase, the polymerase starts from the open region, starts from the open region there and starts reading along the molecule and, and separating it and synthesizing the complement strand, um, when it gets to the end, it just will go around the circle and start going again on the reverse complement version of the sequence. So essentially, as long as your polymerase lives, you will keep sequencing the same sequence first in the forward strand, then the reverse strand, then the forward strand, the reverse strand, forever until you turn off the instrument or your polymerase uh, degrades. Um, and so in typical PAC biosequencing, what they call CLR, these continuous long reads, um, you load. You try to load very large fragments, like 40 kb, 60 kb, um, and you uh, start right away. You put them in to ZMW, and you start reading uh, almost immediately. You turn on the laser and try to observe the polymerase. And uh, because you're starting with this uh, this uh, DNA that has to be separated, right? Because it's double stranded. It takes the polymerase longer to go around the first time um, than it does subsequent passes. Um, and during that time, it's getting damaged by the laser. Uh, and if there's also DNA damage or other issues, on the, it may just fall off the molecule. And so it'll stop reading. And so typically in the CLR, you'll read each molecule that you've loaded you know, one time or, or even less. Right? You might not make it all the way around. Um, what hi-fi sequencing does uh, is there's a couple of ideas um, is one you you select for shorter fragments rather than trying to get 60 kilobase fragments you select a tight uh, distribution of something like 20 kb um, and rather than just turning on the laser right away there's a time where you run the instrument blind where you wait for the uh, polymerase to go around the the molecule once which is the one that takes the longest time. Uh, and then you turn on the laser to observe it, and then you can see it's going to go much faster. So you will have a chance the that while you're observing the polymerase and you're actually, it's being degraded by the laser, um, it'll have a chance to go around that 20 kb molecule more than once. Uh, it'll go around, you know, five, 10 times uh, because you've waited for that, for it to make sure that it can go around that uh, first long, long time, right? Um, and so this, these two ideas let you do a couple of things. So the first thing you do is that you kind of overload um, your, your ZMWs so that because you know that some of the molecules will have DNA damage, have some other issues, the polymerase may fall off them. And so if you put two molecules into a ZMW, normally that's bad because you can't tell which one is being sequenced by the polymerase. But if you have a good chance that one of them uh, you know, won't work with the reaction, um, you don't have to worry about that as much, and so you expect that only one of them will, will be, you know, will be continuously extended. Um, and so uh, you do this, and since the polymerase, with their 
engineering changes, their polymerases can survive for something like 200 kilobases of sequencing time, essentially. Um, you can read the same data 10 times. Um, it's the same 20 kb read 10 times. And so uh, once you do that, you have the information that this all these reads that you read uh, you know, 10 times came from the same place in the genome. Uh, so you can just pile them up on top of each other and call a new consensus and say, well, here's a much better version that represents that region of the genome because I know these all are from the same locus and my errors are pretty random. So I can get most of them uh, out by just reading over and over again and seeing that they're different, right? And get a better accuracy read. And so that's essentially- Or so we thought. <laughs> Yeah, well, modular a couple of uh, a couple of uh, systematic issues, but uh, for the most part, uh, the reads are very high quality. And so, essentially, you can think of it; that it's analogous to if we're doing correction, like I introduced uh, in Canoe, um, where we try to find the overlaps between all the raw reads, and we then call a new consensus for a given read using every overlap we found for it that we deem good enough to use. Uh, except now we have a magic oracle we can ask and say, did these two reads really come from the same um, from the same locus of the genome, which we normally we don't know. We mix in different haplotypes, we mix in uh, different copies of a repeat, uh, just because we're you know our overlapping is not perfect. Uh, and the, you can think of the hi-fi data as essentially a perfect oracle for that first correction step, where it will not ever mix haplotypes. Uh, it will not mix repeat instances. If you get a read from uh, repeat instance A, it's not going to make a consensus of repeat instance A and B. And so that's very powerful uh, for both genome assembly and for separating haplotypes and other kinds of um, applications where you care about you know, differences down to one in every thousand, 10,000 bases. Right. I also, I also wanted to mention that the the approach was there for a while, right, Serge? So they, the PacBio have been producing CCS reads for, for a while, but they used to be limited. Their length used to be limited by like 800 uh, base pairs or one, one KB, uh, which made them KB. not very popular choice, uh, right. because people would rather get, you know, like seven KB noisy reads because they were more, uh, they, they were, for for most of the assembly, at least they were more useful. Uh, but the the key difference now is that those these are the same high quality CCS reads, but now they are twenty kb long. Right. So I think yeah. So uh, essentially, if, if uh, anyone's familiar with IsoSeq, essentially IsoSeq was built on CCS reads. They were just on the order of a couple of kb long, um, and the I think the keys uh, that allowed this new 20 kb uh, hi-fi CCS reads to be, exist is a that the polymerase has gotten more stable and better so they can survive for 20 uh, for 200,000 bases um, of life of reading, um, and b that PacBio figured out these pre-extension, this running blind step, um, and good loading and library selection in a way that let you get good throughput and yield from your CCS data because it used to be that also you would get a very, very tiny fraction of reads that became the CCS reads, um, right? So when you load your library, you would only have like 10% of your data be CCS reads or, or much lower and right. that, that hurts your throughput. So you want to, um, so I think they've optimized those kind of conditions. Okay, so basically this is a new protocol that gives you more, much more accurate uh, reads. The main issue with uh, long reads for for a long time used to be that they have a relatively high error rate, and and this allows to bring that error rate much uh, much further down. Uh, and you'd think that if you have better quality data, then the same algorithms that work for worse data would also work for better data, right? They don't get worse from uh, working with better data. Uh, and so you you could just continue using Canoe on this new type of data. But I guess the trick here is that as our data becomes better, our expectations also grow, right? And so which um, features or which design decisions made in Canoe 
um, made it not the best fit for uh, hi-fi reads? Also, I, I think um, it is, I mean, Canoe is a natural fit for the hi-fi data. Uh, and the first paper that presented this hi-fi data type, um, which was recently published, did use Canoe along with all the other standard long read assemblers that have been developed for noisy data like Falcon uh, and WTDBG2. Um, and you know they all work reasonably well. Um, the issue is that we're essentially uh, trading one thing for another. So the long reads, while they were quite noisy on an individual level, when you got to the final consensus of the assembly, it was pretty good. Um, and because they were so long, there were a lot of repeats that even though they were uh, very similar, you could still resolve them because the reads were longer than them, right? So you can imagine that any repeat that's 50 KB long, if I have 60 KB reads, is trivial for me to resolve an assembly graph because I have unique anchors on both ends. I actually don't think that we mentioned it before. So that's true. Yeah. That, that there are very long reads now. So hi-fi are 20 KB long, which is very long, for especially for somebody who comes from you know short read um, assembly background. Uh, but at the same time, there was this process of long reads getting longer, um, and uh, Oxford nanopores, all these you know people who are watching whales, which are essentially reads that are longer than 500 <laughs> kilobases, uh, occasionally get them, and long read uh, like uh, you know ultra long read sequencing protocols, which give you n50 of your reads, what well beyond 100k. I believe, and um, even for PegBio reads, uh, right, which m many people pr prefer due to more random uh, sequencing uh, errors and uh, higher resulting consensus, uh, they were also getting longer and longer. And now you can get CLR reads which are up to I don't know seventy KB long, I, I believe. So compared to that. Those lengths, 20 KB is somehow already pretty, seems pretty short. <laughs> right. And so that brings us back to this idea that, uh, you know, the, the assemblers were primarily designed to address the issue of, well, how do I find similarity between these reads that are 10%, 12% error, right? Um, and then we got resolution of repeats largely because we uh, had reads that were longer than these repeats. Um, and you know, in the case of a recent project where we're also part of this telomere to telomere consortium where you're trying to finish the human genome. Um, and as part of this project, we obtained these ultra long nanopore reads. We actually had something like 40 or 50 fold coverage of reads greater than 100 KB, which drastically simplifies assembly. Um, and so, when you give these assemblers the 20 KB reads that are very accurate, um, they're still, you know, they're still very, very short by comparison. And so the question is then, well, how much accuracy do you need to gain to co compensate for the read length? So like essentially you can think of it as a question of if I have a 200 KB read that's 10% erroneous, what length 99.9% .9 accuracy read do I need to match its uh, assembly quality in terms of repeat resolution, right, on some genome. Right, and and the answer would be different for different genomes. Yes. Right? So, um, yeah, so what we were mostly looking at uh, this, um, at human genome, actually weird human genome, which is CHM13, uh, and it is uh, effectively haploid uh, human cell line. Um, uh, that the T2T project uh, that uh, Sergey mentioned, which tries to you know assemble, uh, fully assemble all human chromosomes. They this project is focused on this genome, so that was our our model for now. But um, yeah, we uh, I think you you formulated it perfectly. That um, indeed uh, we do not expect that tools. To start perform worse uh, on these datasets compared to the CLR dataset, for example, or Oxford Nanopore dataset with the same read length, right? But uh, since we now have this technology and the reads became much more accurate, but the assemblies did not become much uh, better, so they they became the consensus became higher, 
the 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 continuity became somewhat higher but without any additional development it, it wasn't you know a revolution and since uh, hi-fi now needed to compete with ultra long uh, re-technologies also from PacBio itself so like lo much longer CLR reads um, there was no strong opinion on whether one actually should generate hi-fi reads to get uh or whether it should be a technology of choice for genome assembly. So uh, it, it could be useful for, you know, haplotype analysis uh, still, but um, yeah, so that's where we started. I, I, I guess where this is where Surge started experimenting with hi-fi reads because these initial experiments uh, predate uh, me joining the lab. Um, yeah, and I'll go even further to say that you know, I personally was quite skeptical of the um, of the hi-fi data too, given you know the, the large size discrepancy, um, and that the reads were not you know even though their accuracy was quite high, they were not perfect uh, coming off the sequencer, and we could see that they did still have mistakes, um, kind of in the places where you expect from the long reads. So one place where they have a particularly high error rate is in the homopolymer stretches. So if you have um, you know, eight A's in your genome, you'll have a bunch of reads that say there's eight A's and a bunch that say there's nine A's and a bunch that say there's seven and some that say there's six and some that say there's 10. Um, and so uh, unless you did something to the reads within the assembly kind of, uh, we didn't think you could exceed the quality of these ultra long um, assemblies uh, that are coming out of the, the ultra long nanopore data that we had. Actually, I remember that, and it's funny how it changed overnight. So, right. yeah, uh, but we will we will get to this, I guess. But yeah, so Surge was indeed super skeptical and was pushing to, towards you know us uh, using ultra long uh, nanopore reads for you know for the foreseeable future. But I was very interested in hi-fi reads. Um, interestingly, mostly not because I thought that it's a good choice for uh, vertebrate assemblies, but I was very interested in their application to uh, metagenomic data. And so since I had this interest and I thought that they, are, they should be a very good fit, uh, I was very interested in, you know, digging deeper into the... Um, Pro, the, into how uh, far we can uh, go in uh, in their assembly. So uh, this is what mostly fueled my interest, not the perspective of, you know, getting almost perfect uh, assembly of human chromosomes. Although, like, you know, uh, right now we are at a very different point where we now can assemble human chromosomes very well, and I'm still struggling with assembling with getting good assembly for 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 you know uh, not so complex metagenomic communities, so it's kind of reversed. Yeah, <laughs> so the, the, the seeds of high canoe were um, there was uh, an engineer at uh, PacBio, uh, Rob Grothe, who is a co-author on the high canoe paper, had suggested that I experiment with um, homopolymer compression. Uh, of the reads, since we knew that the these homopolymer stretches uh, that I described before were one of their main error modes, um, and so those were kind of the early experiments with the proto high canoe, where we would we added the ability to compress the reads within uh, canoe, um, and then we would operate in this compressed space. Uh, and one thing I had seen before uh, Sergey joined and started working on this project is that we indeed could do much better in terms of resolving repeats, very similar repeats like segmental duplications in the human genome. But we had very bad continuity. So we were getting the hard parts, uh, but we were getting the easy parts wrong, uh, or we were you know, fragmenting the easy parts. Um, and so that kind of was the start of Sergey's involvement, I think, where he really took off and started looking in detail at this data and trying to understand and comparing, you know, why did we make a mistake in this easy part? Why did we break this easy part that should have been, uh, you know, which was previously assembled correctly and it's not repetitive. Um, and so he found uh, other issues in the data um, that I can let him describe, you know, the process he went through and, and the kind of the changes he made to canoe 
uh, that cumulatively increase the error, uh, decrease the error of these reads. So um, starting initially when you get them off the sequencer, when we map them to uh, what we think is a good truth set uh, for the CHM13 genome, the chromosome X uh, that we resolved uh, semi-manually, um, uh, that none of the reads map uh, perfectly. So all the reads have some mistake. Uh, and then after you go through all the processes of correction that Haikanu uses, 97% uh, or more of them have no mistakes. And so that's you can you know that's a dramatic improvement, right? You go from every read has to, a mistake to almost no reads have a mistake, which obviously is very important for assembly because now we can say, well, I have a 20 kb read that I'm pretty confident. If I see one difference between two reads, that's probably not coming from the same locus of the genome. So now if my repeat has only one difference every 10,000 bases, then uh, I can be confident and I can actually separate those repeats, which is what's enabling these extremely uh, high quality assemblies of human chromosomes and you know other similar kind of repeat structures in other genomes uh, that have these large, uh, slightly diverged, but very large repeats. Right. So. Um... To make this idea a little bit more explicit, uh, let me know if my understanding is correct. But the the repeats cause um, cause problems for assembly because in the assembly graph you have um, two edges. Let's say entering a node that corresponds to a repeat to a or a read from from a repeat, and then two edges leave that node. And uh, you don't know how to pair them. You, you know that those are two different regions um, that have this uh, repeat sequence, but you don't know whether the uh, you know upper edge should be paired with the upper leaving edge and lower entering edge should be paired with the lower leaving edge or vice versa. And so... When you have very long reads, reads longer than the the repeat, then those reads cover the last part of the entering edge and the initial part of the leaving edge, and that allows you to resolve the repeats, meaning um, pair those entering and leaving edges. Um, and that's one strategy that you can use when you have these ultra long reads, but with hi-fi reads, the compromise is that they're shorter, uh, but they're more precise. And so you use the different strategy, um, which is to find these tiny differences because the repeats are not perfect. And so if you can, if you can spot these differences, uh, then uh, you can also resolve this repeats because they are essentially no longer repeats. They're uh, different sequences. And so in, in the paper, you have an uh, interesting set of numbers uh, for how divergent the repeats ought to be in order for different technologies to, to resolve them, right? Yeah, well, I will let Serge comment on this uh, modeling part because he likes it. It's not as simple, unfortunately, but I wanted to comment first on the repeats part. Um, so you are exactly correct, but uh, modulo the fact that you are thinking about it very much in terms of, you know, repeat graph of the genome. So when you see where repeat is, actually, the way that repeat represents itself in the graph depends on uh, what uh, graph module you use. And so in uh, overlap graphs, the repeats uh, that are shorter than read length will look differently actually, and we'll have this what's called our often referred to as our glass motif. Uh, but it doesn't matter. The idea is the same, that um, during assembly, you find overlaps between the reads. And um, if you have, uh, for, for your read, you have several different overlaps uh, which uh, disagree with each other, right? So it overlaps with two reads that cannot follow each other in the genome. Uh, you often cannot uh, choose uh, essentially which way to go. So which which one of the reads should extend your read. So all, all assembly, I think, can be thought of as, you know, gluing 
uh, reads based on their overlaps. That's essentially what's going on independent of which model you use. Um, and so you just uh, don't know where to go. And then with the long reads, again, depending on how you represent your graphs and so on and so forth, but the idea is that uh, everything becomes simpler uh, if you have a read uh, which anchors to unique parts of the gene. So the, the, the parts which are not repetitive, for which you do not have uh, homologous uh, regions of high, high similarity in the gene, right? So whenever your read spans uh, the complex region of the genome, you're good. Uh, yeah, and with, with high, th there is, um, so the way you started describing how to use differences between the repeats, actually there are tools which um, do it exactly like that. So when they actually try to spot places where the reads uh, differ from each other, so they, for example, first uh, get the initial representation of the repetitive region, like consensus representation, right? And then try to align the reads and see where the differences are, and then to understand, aha, so here probably there are three copies, and here are the you know, particular d d differences which are specific to each copy, and then, okay, we now can resolve this part. This is what Fly does uh, with the repeat resolution. Um, we have a different approach. So uh, in our approach, um, essentially, you, you, what is a repeat? Repeat within the assembly is everything for which you identify the overlap. For example, imagine you are only looking at the perfect overlaps without any differences. Then if the repeats, uh, uh, repeat copies have differences every, like, for example, 100 base pairs, uh, you just won't see it at all. Uh, and it won't confuse your assembly because the, re the reads from different copies of the repeats won't overlap at this, uh, won't overlap in this case. Right. Right. And so, uh, this is, I, I think Serge actually missed this part. So, uh, he, the, the, the reason why, uh, the assembly stopped being continuous is not because the data was bad. It's because he was super ambitious. And he he realized that uh, so he he knew all too well uh, that dependent on this uh, threshold that you use for detecting overlaps, uh, right? You uh, implicitly immediately resolve many overlaps. So the the higher the threshold that you can use on your overlap identity, uh, the better will be your results. And so he tried to use very very stringent overlap identity, which uh, seemed for me, crazy at the moment. So I, I didn't think that it, we would be able uh, to do that. Um, that's why his assemblies were more fragmented. So the previously published Kano assemblies and the other assemblies that we used as baseline, uh, they were actually well, but we wanted to do better, right? So we wanted to resolve this uh, hard segmental duplications. And so what Serge started seeing is that when he increases the threshold for he uses for to detect overlaps, the number of resolved segment duplica segmental duplications goes up, but the continuity overall continuity goes down. Um, so yeah, that's when I that's when I joined uh, the game. Yeah. Anyway, I think we we need now to discuss the second part of your question, right? Yeah. So this repeat modeling. Um, so it's specific to the human genome. Uh, and what we did, uh, this was actually motivated by our work on the paper that had some of the first, uh, actually the first ultra-long nanopore data, uh, where we were interested in the question of, well, how much ultra-long nanopore data should we be generating? Um, and so we wanted to try to answer this somehow without actually generating the data, because at the time it was pretty intensive to, to generate. Um, and so... Uh, I used the current human reference, this GRCH38, uh, which has a lot of different annotation information and tracks that are available through the UCSC genome browser that people have contributed based on various analysis that, that give a good idea of what the repeat structure in the human genome look like. Um, and so what that model does is it's really simple. Uh, it takes all that information and collates it together. And so then it has a catalog that says, okay, uh, at this position in chromosome two, there's a repeat that's 98% identical to something else in the genome. Uh, at this position in chromosome five, there's a repeat that uh, is 
uh, you know, 50,000 bases long and we don't know what identity it is because it's a gap in the reference, let's say. And so we assume it's 100% identity. Um, and so then what you you can do then is say, okay, let's assume that we can resolve any repeat that's more than, has more than 2% uh, differences. We're just going to say, okay, ignore that. That's not a repeat as far as we're concerned. Uh, and then we look at the other repeats and say, okay, if we had a 50 KB read, how many of these repeats would they span, right? If we had a read that was 20 KB, how many of these uh, repeats would it span? Um, and so uh, then you just plot that information for various read lengths uh, and you get this, this kind of line that tells you what you expect to see from your assembly. Um, in order to put an actual assembly onto this plot, what you have to do is uh, look at the actual read distribution. Um, and because the reads aren't all the same length, you do a little probabilistic that you know that you have a uh, that you have a good probability chance of getting a read at least this long, right? So if you have 100 KB reads, uh, that doesn't mean all your reads are 100 KB. So you you do have to do a little bit of uh, statistics just to say, okay, if I have 5x of 100 KB reads, I'm not going to cover every possible repeat, uh, but I'll cover a lot of them with these this length read. Um, and so typically from what we've seen empirically, when you take real assemblies um, and put them on this plot, they seem to follow something like they can resolve repeats that are more than about 2% or so um, diverged, uh, maybe a little less than that, somewhere in that range from uh, long nanopore data or from uh, the PacBio CLR data. Um, and when you look at the uh, kind of, when you take these assemblers that were designed for the long read data and you apply them to the HiFi data, um, they seem to follow somewhere between uh, below 1%, something like half a percent of um, divergence of repeat is enough uh, to resolve. Uh, and this makes sense because uh, these reads are about Q20. Um, and so, you know, if you think that the overlap is about twice the error of the um, of the individual read quality, um, you typically the assemblers run at somewhere like one percent tolerance for differences, half a percent. So any repeat that's more similar than half a percent is going to show up as a branch in your graph. Is going to show up as something that confuses your graph, where you get these reads, like Sergey said, where you have incompatible reads and you have no way to figure out which one is which. Um, and so, uh, you know, based on that same modeling, we saw that if we could improve the read quality, uh, you should expect much, much better assemblies, uh, because there are a lot of near identical, but not identical repeats in the human genome, according to our model. Um, and, and actually there's even more of them than the model says, because as I mentioned, when I was introducing the model, when you have a 50 kilobase gap in the reference, my model just says, well, that must be hundred percent identity. Um, but obviously in real humans, that's not true. We, we had some earlier work in the lab, uh, led by our postdoc, Alex Delphi and the collaboration with NCI, um, that looked at the RDNA regions of the human genome, which are these large tandem repeat arrays of 50 KB. And we saw that even these regions, um, that are under high pressure, right? Because these are highly functional genes, uh, they, they still had variability and variation that were present, uh, at some relatively regular intervals, uh, perhaps more than people would have expected if you asked them. Um, and so because there is probably more variation than represented in our model, uh, our assembly, at some point our model becomes kind of useless when your assembly is resolving really, really similar repeats uh, because the model always says you can't resolve that repeat because I have no information on it, which is not always the case in the real genome. Right, but it's not that like we've been checking with this model, you know, <laughs> to set up the thresholds uh, no. while we were trying to trying to look uh, at what's going on. No, it's more of a motivation of like if we could only have reads that were this good, we could do better. We should be able to do better, right? Right. Yeah. And so yeah, we 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 started looking at why we did, were not doing better. And uh, I started at looking at uh, the points where we our context broke, uh, essentially when we try to increase the identity, right? And I uh, started seeing, um, uh, well, first of all, I started seeing some errors in the reads, which was uh, expected. 
the not so expected part was that um Kanu should have been able to deal with them uh because it had this um, special module called uh, overlap uh error adjustment uh, which doesn't matter but uh, essentially Kanu uh, as i said Kanu has uh, everything there right uh, everything is somewhere in Kanu so it also had some um procedure for repeat for read correction yeah, I actually, I, I actually was considering other strategies as well, like you know, uh, trying to uh, detect the the, the 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 gaps, so the reads where which we couldn't extend, and then lower the identity thresholds at those regions, uh, so that we will connect it to somewhere, and it's uh, you know some 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 stunt procedure some kind of gap closing procedure essentially but then i started uh, before implementing anything of that sort i decided to understand uh, why uh, the module wasn't working well so so the read correction module is that the thing that we discussed in the first part of this discussion where there are overlaps and they they correct the the right uh... so in it's it's very it's similar but it's different so it's a different module uh and uh, the difference is that in that uh, initial correction uh we uh, always take the consensus of the overlaps which we got so we we tr do not try to actually analyze the uh, the alignment itself so we get the reads which align there we take consensus and we spew out the new version of the read so this module was trying to do something less uh, disruptive and it tried to uh, look at the uh at the pileups of the reads uh and only um correct the base if all of the reads at this uh, position um were agreeing uh at the base which we should use there right instead of the one which is in our read so instead of just taking consensus, uh, we were not introducing the changes uh, if the current state was supported by some reads. Well, not by single, but by two reads. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter. Uh, so, but but in the in the sense, it's it's very similar. But um, uh, I think yeah, right. So the the important part, we the the initial correction we disabled immediately. Because the initial correction would kill our efforts to um, disconnect the repeats of high identity, right? To resolve them, because we would get the some reads with weird consensus, which would be uh, some you know mixture, some chimera between different uh, similar copies of this repeat. So that initial part we disabled uh, first, I would say, I would guess, right, Serge? Yep. Yeah. Um, essentially the. Homopolymer compression is uh, what we do instead. Right. So we thought that homopolymer compression would be enough. Uh, it was let's, not. Uh, let's let's define that. That is a very simple concept, but let, let's define it formally. Oh, homopolymer compression. Right. So it's also called. So similar one is called uh, run length encoding, and it's more actually I think better notion, but. We use homopolymer compression because we do not log. So if you have a stretch of the same letters, uh, run length encoding, uh, says that, okay, so how many uh, of these letters you now have? So instead of having a letter A repeated 10 times, you just write down A10. And in homopolymer compression, you just write A. So we are forgetting how many copies of A were there in the first place. Uh, and we do this transformation on all the reads and actually then perform the assembly in this home polymer compressed space. I think a very similar trick uh, is used in Shasta assembler. So, I, I mean, we are not the, the first ones to, uh, to do that. Mm, and uh, it works. Uh, so they, they because... Uh, uh, both PegBio and uh, Oxford Nanopore, as Serge mentioned before, this is the primary mode of errors to add uh, insertions or deletions, depending on the technology, to undercall or overcall the number of uh, homopolymer bases. 
Yeah, and, and so this procedure, if you have uh, two reads uh, that have, you know, they differ in the number of times some letter is replicated, mm -hmm. um, this procedure takes these different reads and make them similar, although they right. now have very little in common with the true sequence, but at least between themselves, they are now identical. Right. And also, I mean, it's important to understand also that uh, we are actually masking the real differences, home polymer differences uh, as well. So if we have two repeat instances where that differ only by the number of times the letter A is repeated there, we won't see this difference anymore. Luckily, uh, usually, uh, repeat, uh, like segmental duplications have different types of, uh, uh, differences there, right? And actually, the primary mode would be not a home polymer error, but would be, uh, substitution of one letter against, uh, to, to, to a different letter, right? So uh, that's, that's why we are, um, along with, you know, ignoring most of errors, it allows you to still see most of the real differences. So uh, I started looking at that, and then uh, we realized that if we uh, fix some of the, you know, in the remaining errors, uh, we would have a chance to essentially, you know, not make a gap at this um, position. And so I suggested doing uh, read correction. And then search told me that we already should have read correction. And then I started looking at why it wasn't working. And apparently this module that hasn't been very useful for, you know, the results on PacBio and uh, Oxford Nanopore reads, uh, it was broken in at least, I think, three or four places. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's a very cool example of how, you know, if you have a low uh, selection, on some part of your code. So essentially if it's if it's not essential, it accumulates bugs at a yeah. drastic, you know, speed. And the the final bug that was there was particularly hilarious because it, it essentially disabled the entire module and nobody knew like nobody knew that it happened. So <laughs> um but and I yeah. think it was not working properly from the start of canoe right i think it got broken when it got moved from solar assembler into canoe well yeah there was there was one bug then you introduced another bug while trying to fix some seg fault right. which actually uh, which essentially disabled it in like half of the cases but then the, but its it results the right but it then its results were you know entirely ignored so um but then so and then came the cool thing uh, and I, I think it's important to uh, thank Serge for that. Uh, Serge uh, has this uh, cool property. He does a lot of experiments. So, you know, I would obsess for, you know, at a, for resolving some particular cases, uh, and to trying to make this part perfect and to, to dig deep into investigations. And so I was, I was investigating and I was fixing. So I, I made one fix. I made the second fix. I made the third fix. And then while I was fixing that, Serge was, you know, essentially running the assemblies every day, oh, just on the version that was uh, most up to date at this point. And then, you know, after one of the fixes, it just worked. So essentially, we wake up in the morning to see that we now have uh, one of the best assemblies of this genome uh, that were ever, you know, made, but without any additional efforts on our part that sounds like a like a typical hollywood scene you know from a movie when when a hacker just wakes up and sees that all the code has been fixed right you know so i works. wasn't expecting that because at this point i was you know fixing bugs in the canoe for you know a month and a half or something and uh, they were like i thought that it would be a never-ending process but then it clicked so it was a very cool moment. It immediately searched that, that uh, okay, now we, we don't care about ultra long nanopore reads. Let's focus on this stuff. <laughs> and, um, and so then we, we did some additional work. So we, for example, identified some, some recurrent errors in the, uh, high, high reads, which were not described, uh, before. Um, and, um, essentially, 
we we realize that not only homopolymer runs cannot be trusted, right? Uh, but also the uh, number of copies uh, of uh, you know simple pattern in um, micro like a dinucleotide like ATATAT like, or something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, in in this uh, you know simple uh, repeat arrays. Uh, microsatellites? Yeah, yeah, microsatellites. Thanks. Sorry. Yeah, brain freeze. Uh, so they also couldn't be trusted. So, uh, and uh, we, instead of digging too deep into this, we just decided to um, ignore the differences in those regions while we are uh, comparing the reads to each other. Right. So when we are trying to understand how good overlap is, well, that obviously ignored some more uh, real differences between repeat instances. And I think this, this part can be improved. Um, but yeah, at this point, we started getting, we started already getting very good assemblies. And, um, then we introduced, had to introduce some changes in, within Bogart, um, uh, because, uh, Essentially, it was lacking the procedures, which are, you know, standard for most other assemblers. Let's recap briefly what, what Bogart is. So this is the way you uh, choose overlaps? The, the, no, no, no. It's this module for essentially building context from the overlaps, the one that uses mm -hmm. best overlap graph. It, it's Bogart because it's Bog based on best overlap graphs. Right. And it's art because it's heuristics that no one knows. <laughs> no, art does, no art doesn't actually stand for uh as far as i know it doesn't stand for anything it was originally bog and then when they adapted it to lumina data it got renamed to bogart there was a developer of solar assembler named art delcher but i don't think it's named after him because he was not actually actively working on this code so i've never heard an explanation for why it's called art I like your explanation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. Well, now, I mean, now it's not true already because since we um, submitted the paper, actually, most of the time we spent afterwards was on trying to figure out what Bogart is actually doing and, you know, making more, it more reliable and, uh, and uh, robust. And robust. Yeah. To, for example, it was skipping a lot of, uh, you know, tandem repeats just uh, putting essentially a single copy and then going further without any uh, evidence uh, for doing that and things like that. But uh, I think one of the major changes we had to make to it for the High Canoe paper um, is handling header zygosity better. Um, so this this human that we were working with first, the CHM13 cell line, it's like Sergey mentioned, it's um, it's effectively haploid. It has two copies of every chromosome, but they are the same everywhere, or for the most part, with a couple of exceptions. Um, and so when you assemble a diploid genome, um, you get, in this best overlap graph, you get a long path. Your first greedy path is going to represent some pseudo-haplotype where you randomly walked through and you switched between the different haplotypes. Um, and then you get these shorter stretches, which are the the kind of bubbles in a traditional graph. Um, but because you have a best overlap graph, you don't actually see them as bubbles during the construction because you don't look at all those overlaps. Um, and because Bogart had this uh, step where it went back and looked for branches, um, it couldn't tell the difference between a branch that was caused by a repeat, uh, a real issue, uh, or if it was a, a branch called, uh, caused by a bubble, um, and so it had the effect that on, on very heterozygous genomes, it would over-fragment the assembly. Um, and this was a problem on genomes that were uh, diverged, you know, from, from the PacBio long read data or from the Oxford Nanopore data, um, if they were more diverged than a couple of percent, because that was, you know, essentially everything below that we just smashed and we didn't see that as a difference in haplotypes, we just... Uh, made a consensus of both haplotypes and didn't care about bubbles, right? Uh, but once you got diverged enough, it would uh, tend, uh, Canoe tended to fragment those kind of assemblies uh, more than it should have. Right. Uh, but this is very Canoe specific issue. That's yes. uh, important to understand. So in, in, in like other models or it would be so that all the, you know, all this would end at uh, bubble uh, detection. At bubble detection. Yeah. Or super right. bubble detection. So, 
but uh, somehow Bogar did not have this uh, part at all. So we had to introduce it there. And it's a mess just because of how it's... I mean, Bogart is old. And <laughs> uh, some of the, you know, uh, later developed concepts, uh, they are, end up being tricky uh, to introduce there. That's one of the reasons why we want to essentially, you know, at some point um, go to some other way of producing the context. But uh, yeah, importantly, so I think take take away message here is that, you know, if you don't allow, essentially, if you look at 100% identical uh, sequences when you're searching overlaps, uh, all the uh, heterozygous differences, uh, which you could ignore before, now you will see them. And this is also, you know, so this is a pain if you want more continuous uh, assembly that of a, like what's called pseudo haplotype, you know, where you are okay with, you know, switching between uh, haplotypes um, and one consensus. Uh, but it's also important uh, because it allows you uh, for diploid genomes to produce very long stretches of individual haplotypes, right? Uh, just, uh, w just implicitly. So without any, you know, sp special modules for haplotype resolution, just because you only allow uh, for uh, when you're searching for overlaps, uh, you do not allow for any differences, only reads from the same haplotype will glue with each other. And uh, this is uh, one part of the analysis that we showed that, um, you know, essentially we are, um, for example, for MHC complex, uh, we re correctly reconstruct all the alleles of all the genes, uh, which people usually care about when they look at this complex, but we cannot, just based on the hi-fi data we have, because of its limited length, and because there are some regions of very, very high, uh, low heterozygosity, right? So high similarity between haplotypes, we cannot, without additional information, it seems impossible to recover the fully uh, resolved haplotype for this region, but we are reconstructing alleles of all the genes perfectly, all the copies of all the genes, but we don't know how to um, relate many of them. So well, we, we know how to relate some of them, obviously, but we, we cannot go through the entire MHC. Um, so for this, we would need to integrate some additional information, you know, like high C or strength C core, something else. Trios. Trios, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. With trios, we, we are getting perfectly assembled MHCs, I would believe. But with that, without this additional information, those are just uh, different contexts in, in your output? There's one large mm -hmm. contig that has um, a pseudo-haplotype. So, you know, the, the, these are, there, there's these six canonical genes that we're using that are commonly the ones people type. Um, and so they're spaced so that there's about a megabase of space between some of the genes. Um, and so uh, these genes, let's say there's A, B, C, right, uh, genes. And so you will have A from the maternal haplotype, but you'll have B and C from the paternal haplotype um, in the lo one lo long contig. Uh, mm -hmm. But you'll have other shorter contigs that'll have the corresponding allele that you didn't have. So if you had the paternal A, you'll have a short contig that has the maternal A. And if you had the maternal BC uh, in that large contig, we have a short contig that has the paternal BC, uh, but you will still have one large contact that's going through the MHC. It's just that, uh, as Sergey is saying, we don't know how to tie the maternal A to the maternal BC because there is a stretch of uh, homozygosity between them uh, that that we can't tease apart. And so we just will randomly connect the paternal A with the maternal BC. Right. But if the if, if PacBio comes up with a way, for example, to increase the read length twice, Maybe it won't be a problem anymore. Every update to the technology here could become a game changer because we we are producing quite long uh, pieces of uh, these uh, haplotypes, right? Perfectly phased. Right, they're almost the megabase in length on a human genome, which is pretty good given the twenty kilobase reads. So, about you know, most of your if you're looking at a gene, 
because these stretches are mega base long that are phased, the, the gene is probably going to be all in one phase. So if you're looking at gene A, uh, it's going to be all maternal or all paternal. Um, it's just the correspondence between gene A and gene B a mega base away. It's not necessarily the same. Yeah. But this is quite specific to uh, how Kanu uh, output is organized. So, for example, in the in the other project by Heng Lee called Hi-Fi ASM, which he's actively working on, I if I remember correctly, the they produce like different kinds of outputs, and uh, there you can you know depending on what you want to do with those, uh, you can choose between uh, different kinds of outputs. Um, and either see, you know, this long pseudocapletype quantics, uh, or really get, you know, this graph with long bubbles, uh, representing, um, alternative, uh, haplotypes, essentially. So, I mean, it's, it's all work in progress, but it seems to be, um, the, the, the takeaway is hi-fi, uh, seems to be a, very useful uh, type of data uh, to do analysis of haplotypes. Mm, and um, speaking of additional data types, I don't think we've mentioned that here that um, both recent works, which were uh, generating the, trying to generate uh, chromosome scale, you know, haplotype result assemblies, uh, were using HiFi along with some other type of data which would produce this you know, long-range information. Um, in one case, it was HiC, and in another, in another, it was strain-seq. Strain-seq. But uh, as a basis uh, for their work, both of them uh, were using uh, PegBio HiFi. Right, and part of the motivation for the HiFi and something we haven't talked at all about is that um, the HiFi is actually quite useful for variant calling as well. Um, so. Uh, both of those approaches that Sergey mentioned, they make a collapsed assembly first, uh, and then they map all the reads, call variants, um, and call uh, heterozygous variants, and then try to identify those variants within the reads, uh, and then separate the reads into bins. Um, and so there were similar approaches that were used before. Um, uh, our postdoc, Arang Ri, was on this Korean human genome paper where they used combinations of technologies like 10x to call variants, and then they try to phase the PagBio reads using those variants. The, the nice thing about the high c data is that you can get both from one data type. So you don't need to have Illumina to call your SNPs and then PagBio to do the assembly. You just do everything from the HiFi data, which is quite nice. Um, and I think one of the most exciting things for me that was in the Haikanu paper that was actually a, a very late addition um, was we, uh, we as we mentioned before, we we're working on this T2T project. And so we have uh, finished chromosome X, including the centromere. So it's the full chromosome for the first time we have a centromere assembled uh, and it's telomere to telomere. Um, so there's no gaps. Uh, and uh, we want to finish all the other chromosomes, obviously. And so there's uh, ongoing work in the consortium um, to automate these assemblies. So there's work from the FLY team from uh, Pavel Pevsner's group uh, working on central FLY um, uh, and mosaic FLY that are trying to improve the resolution of segmental duplications as well as uh, centromeres automatically. And we, uh, we were comparing some of our results. And I noticed that actually a centromere was assembled in the Haikanu output, uh, which was very exciting, but I was very skeptical because as Sergey mentioned, you know, we knew there are shortcomings in Bogart. And so my first assumption when I see something like an assembled centromere uh, out of an automated canoe assembly is that it's probably wrong. Um, without good evidence that that's not and the we case. Had, and we had good uh, uh, good uh, support for this uh, assumption, right? Yes, because uh, from we, the chromosome X, which was resolved, but wasn't there <laughs> in the nanopore data. Yeah, in the in the nanopore uh, assembly we had done with Canoe uh, of uh, this CHM13 cell line, we had resolved quote unquote uh, chromosome X, except it was just collapsed together. So we had a single contig that should have been split, but was not. Um, and instead of having you know over two thousand copies of this uh, high order repeat that comprises the centromere, there was like. 500 or something or, or 600. So it was obviously incorrectly collapsed. 
but our collaborator, um, Karen Niga, who is the co-founder of the T2T project, uh, started looking at some of our centromeres and actually found that they matched her um, manual reconstruction. So she was doing these reconstructions where she identified all the variants in the centromere herself uh, and then made a tiling path of the reads that had these variants that explained all the variants that gave her uh, a draft centromere uh, with all the variants represented, but uh, at a low sequence quality because it's just the tiling path of a single read. So it's, it's a quality of one read, right? Um, using these ultra long nanopore reads. Um, and so she was using that as kind of a benchmark, a baseline. Um, and when she compared our, our assemblies to some of those, uh, it turned out that our assembly was actually quite good and correct. Uh, and not only correct in one centromere, but correct in several centromeres. Um, so we ended up in the Heikano paper describing nine of these candidates. Now, obviously, not all of them are going to be perfect. There are still going to be some mistakes in them um, that will need to be fixed, that will be fixed through the changes that Sergey mentioned that we're improving Bogart. Some of those changes fix uh, mistakes we were making. Um, and other improvements to the assembly, improvements to the data. But it's extremely exciting that, you know, uh, about a year ago, we were working on a T2T project and we barely had one chromosome with a centromere after lots of manual effort. And now we had nine candidates, which, like I said, even if they're not perfect, um, it's much easier to at least have an idea of what the centromere looks like, what we're going after, what we need to fix when we have it for, you know, half the, almost half the, uh, chromosomes in that genome uh, than to just be going in blind. Yeah, and actually there will be, uh, we, we hope to get an update to this work uh, pretty soon where with, you know, alternative and hopefully more robust method of generating quantics and um, assembly graphs, uh, it seems that we we should be able to get another T2T uh, assemblies for another five or so chromosomes. Uh, so stay tuned. So anything else uh, you guys want to discuss about Haikanu? So um, this is, I, I wanted to reiterate this important part that nowadays, if you, if somebody wants to work with hi-fi reads, um, it is, so the, most of the tricks uh, and changes that we made to make it work uh, can be reused by other people in their own pipelines, for example. So most of the changes that we discussed with you, uh, they relate to how we correct the reads, how we score the overlaps, right? So actually it's possible to get these overlaps from Haikanu and do whatever you want with them. Um, so I think it's important that if anybody wants to um, to to work to experiment with hi-fi reads uh, or to to improve on our analysis, there is no need to uh, be um, a, you know professional canoe developer. There is no need to rely on all this code base. There there are places where you can just grab intermediate results and try to do whatever you want with them. So yeah, if somebody is interested in the, in doing some of this work, just contact me or Serge, and we will tr do our best to try to help you, uh, you know, get the uh, intermediate output that you need for your experiments. I think yeah, that I would think, be my message. I think that's that's a good point, and it's kind of cool that unlike a lot of the um, when you're working with the very noisy data, um, it's much harder to just grab the overlaps and go. Um, you know, it, it's much easier with hi-fi data uh, because they're so close. There, there's so few errors. There's, it's much easier to look at places by hand uh, and know what you're looking at than if you just grab the random stretch of uh, back by a long reads and try to look and make sense of what they're trying to tell you there. Um, so I, I think it's, it's a low barrier to entry to play with the hi-fi data. Um, and it's very exciting data type. And yeah, so and it's, it's, it's super, it's very, uh, you know, fulfilling and, uh, very pleasant. For example, you know, assembly graph from the entire human assembly, you can just look at it and try to see which regions are, 
still hard to resolve and which are trivial, which would be impossible for, you know, most of the other data types. You would just, you know, get with this very complicated. So the, 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 the whole situation will be just too complicated for you, uh, to visualize or to, uh, you know, make sense of. And, um, yeah, as, apparently when you work with, you know, high hundred percent, uh, I did threshold for identity or for overlap search, everything becomes much, much simpler. Yeah. Um, I guess one other thing that's worth mentioning, um, is, uh, one other thing we did discover that we describe in the paper uh, is that at least currently, um, there seems to be a bias where regions, um, that are, uh, either large G repeats or GA, GA, GA repeats, um, they cause coverage dropouts. So there's some regions we found like on uh, chromosome eight in our assembly that we looked at, and then several on chromosome X, where despite the genome being on average covered to about 30 X, uh, those regions were only covered by two reads or something like this, uh, which you can imagine causes some difficulty for our assembly. Um, and so this is an yeah, issue and it's, and it's, it's do- definitely non-random effect because we saw the gaps. Uh, so we saw depletion of coverage at the same spots in other libraries as well. So right. So there were three different different size selections, different libraries of HiFi data sequenced at different times uh, on the instruments, and they all have the exact same pattern. Um, and so this is something we've communicated back to PacBio uh, that they're looking at improving. So one of the reasons I bring it up is this is not a very common motif in the human genome. I mean, it occurs, but it's not, you know, every other base or something like that. But there are, uh, there are certainly some genomes, it seems like uh, fish in particular, have more of this type of uh, repeat. And so if your genome has a lot of these repeats, the HiFi data may not at present work as well for you unless you somehow deal with these um areas after the fact. So, you know, if you assemble them with Haikanu, you'll probably have a bunch of gaps there. And you could then try to scaffold with the uh, HiFi data or other data that doesn't have that issue. Um, But that's just the caveat that, you know, at present, there is this limitation of the technology that will limit its application to some genomes, which have a lot of this motif present. And obviously, PagBio is working on trying to fix it because they don't want to have this limitation. but uh, they're, they were actively working on it the last time I, I had a chance to talk with them, but obviously they've been kind of shut down by, um, coronavirus. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, since California is pretty much shut down, they're not able to work on this as much as they'd like, obviously. Yeah. As I mentioned, I, I'm also very excited about potential applications to metagenomic data. Uh, and, uh, I think it will be very interesting. Uh, and this data type can, should be able to help with, um, you know, analysis of intraspecies, uh, diversity, especially in more complex, uh, communities. But it's all very early days. So, uh, the, the long read metagenomics in the world isn't quite, you know, in, in not very, um, mature, uh, shape. And uh, hi-fi applications have been uh, very there have have been very very few of them, and uh, nobody actually knows what we will discover uh, in the next uh, half a year. So I'm very excited about that. I think it has potential to be you know transformative uh, for that um, area of research uh, as well. Guys, it's, it's been a an amazing conversation. I think uh, these two episodes are. A must listen for everyone who's interested in uh, genome assembly, either as a as a developer or as a user. And uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks. It was fun. Thank you very much, Roman. You're an amazing host. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, we didn't scare everyone away from using Canoe. Now that everyone knows all the horrible, horrible bugs. <laughs> <laughs>